that conference is two weeks from now. Two weeks, two Saturdays from now is our Breathe Women's Conference, and you need to be here, okay? Listen, if every, if every lady here, 13 and up, brought two people, we'd be full. We'd have a full house. Wouldn't that be marvelous? That would be so nice. So be in prayer for that. Put that on your calendar. Guys, dads, husbands, let's make this really, really easy for gals to be here on Saturday, May 16th, okay? So we're really looking forward to that. We're excited about what God's going to do. We have a great speaker, wonderful worship. I think great food. It's going to be a great, I'm kind of, I think I might come. So anyway, but anyway, but anyway please be here. Uh, it's going to be a great time. Uh, please, if you have a Bible with you, turn to Luke chapter 18. If you don't, we have some Bibles there around you, and we invite you to use that this morning, even take it with you if that is your need or desire. We'd love for you to have a copy of the scriptures that you can take for yourselves. <clears throat> and we'll be in Luke chapter 18. Again, talking about prayer. Last week I mentioned that I had received an email from someone in our congregation, and it was a tender note. It was a question Why don't we see more answers to prayer? That's a great question. I loved it for a couple of reasons, as I mentioned last time. First, it showed me that God's people are interested in spiritual things. That's good. That your hearts are are toward God. You're you're interested in knowing more about how you can have a deeper and more meaningful relationship with the Lord. That was encouraging. The second reason I love the question is because it reminded me that we're all human. We're all human. We're all in need of so much more of what God has for us. Something beyond ourselves. And that question reminded me once again of our authentic, genuine need for a deeper and more powerful relationship with God. And who better to learn from about prayer than our Lord Jesus. So we're going to do that over the course of the next couple of weeks. And today we're going to go back to Luke chapter 18 and look a little more closely at this passage that we started to look at last week. I'm just going to read the story for you and then we'll go back and make a few comments and then hopefully apply it in some helpful ways. This is Luke writing at the beginning of chapter 18. One day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, Jesus said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people? Who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? Now you could go anywhere on the planet today. Go to a Christian bookstore, get on Amazon.com or Google search. I would like to know more about prayer. I want to know how to pray. I want to know what God thinks about prayer. You could do that. You could find 
endless resources out there. And maybe you should, not a problem. But how would you like to know what God thinks about prayer from his son, Jesus? Wouldn't that be good? I mean, wouldn't that be a great place to begin if you want to know more about prayer or maybe how prayer could be more powerful or effective in your life or maybe why you're not getting the kind of results that maybe you think you should be getting or maybe that you hope that you would get? Don't you think Jesus, the creator, God of the universe, our savior, this master prayer in his own right would have something to say about prayer? That's the idea of Luke chapter 18, this great story. Now here we have several contrasts that Jesus wants us to see. First of all, as we talked about last week, there's a a corresponding contrast in principle, the way we live our, our lives. Luke said that Jesus told his disciples this story or this parable for one reason. He wanted them to learn that they ought to pray always so that they wouldn't faint. Jesus made it very clear through this story that there are really only two options for us to live our lives. First of all, we can pray. We can acknowledge God. We can live our lives under his care in submission to his will and his rule in our lives. And the the outflow of that is that we turn regularly and fervently, humbly in prayer to him. We, We talk to him because we want his perspective. We need his supply, his resources, his wisdom, his energy, his grace, all of those things. That's that's a way to live your life, to believe God, what he says about you, about your condition, and what your ultimate need is for your life. And the expression of that is prayer. Jesus told this story because he wanted his disciples to know that they ought to live like that, to pray. Prayer is real. It's practical in and of itself. It's enormously valuable, but it's also a metaphor for the submitted life, a life that lives in humble submission to God. There's another way to live. That's not to pray. Not to acknowledge God. Not to turn to Him. But simply to rely and rest on your own resources, your own ability, your own kind of wisdom or or common senses. To kind of trust your own gut, your own heart, or maybe your past, or something that's been handed down to you for generations. That's the other way to live. But Luke says that Jesus told this story, not only so that his disciples would know that they ought to pray, but that they also know that if they choose not to pray, ultimately they're going to quit. They're going to faint. Not to pray is to run out of resources. To end up at the end of your rope. Empty, without hope, without resource, without energy, without a sense of purpose or meaning to kind of take you all the way through the end. He wanted his disciples to know that there are really only two ways to live out this response to God. The one is to pray, the other is to faint. And so there's a contrast in principles. How easy it is for people to simply throw in the towel when the odds seem stacked against them. There's a sense of despair, even emptiness. Jesus teaches in this story that there are are, are really only two options. Acknowledge that God is there and turn to Him in prayer and call upon Him for resource, for help, for mercy, for kindness or understanding, or you're going to faint. 
The world, on one hand, sees that there is really no need for God or believes that there is no need for God. God, their God is an agnostic science, a God without emotion, void of compassion or mercy, kindness and understanding, only purely objective, benign, without empathy, Measured, tested, analyzed, theorized, and we owe much to this science. It also is a gift of God. But to build a life and to count on some sort of experience in eternity solely on its precepts, ultimately, Jesus said, will lead to fainting, despair. We see it all the time. When science took its ruling place in our culture, it took quick hold There were so many advances. It became the God that society worshipped. And the harvest is a whole generation of individuals and people who've been taught that there is no need for God. They can be their own gods. Your God. That there's little meaning in life and certainly in eternity, but everyone, we somehow simply emerged out of some sort of kind of theory of motion, evolution, imperceptibly over time. But there's nothing to pursue but self-indulgence until the end when, guess what? There's nothing. Nothing. That's the end of science that denies God. Jesus said, you pray... Because you reject that notion and it gives you hope and strength and grace and motion and meaning and purpose in life. When we don't pray, we we are agnostics at best and we are atheists at worst. So there's a a contrast in principle. There's also, there's there's a contrast in in these individuals, these people that Jesus describes. First of all, he says there's a judge. There there was a judge in a certain city. This was a municipal judge. And and Jesus said he wasn't religious. He neither feared God, and he really wasn't even a good person. He, He didn't care about people. How's that for a combination? Sitting in a place of unusual influence, but completely denied the existence of God, and didn't have an ounce of compassion for people. By the way, that in my opinion is absolutely the worst possible combination. To be a person in significant place of influence over others who neither fears God or offers grace toward people. That is a recipe for disaster. I don't care if you're a parent, if you're a leader, if you're a pastor, if you're a senator, if you're a teacher, if you're a principal, if you're a police officer. It doesn't matter if you have significant opportunity to influence the well-being, the life of other people, and you don't acknowledge God, and you don't have compassion for people, you are only going to bring injury and heartache. And that's this judge. But he was her only hope. Here is a widow, Jesus said. 
a widow in need. She was a widow of that same city, and she came to this judge repeatedly, saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. She came over and over, perhaps every day, maybe it was every week, whenever he was in session, she came back to the judge with her need. Now, a widow, a woman who had lost her husband in that setting, would have been among the weakest and neediest in all of society, vulnerable, yet at the mercy of a sitting judge who neither feared God or had compassion on people. Now at this point in the story, no one who's listening to Jesus is optimistic at any level. This woman had a need, a need for a right to be made wrong. And she knew that that need was greater than her own ability to care for it, so she turned to the one, the only one at her disposal who could possibly help And this is the beginning of entreaty. A need beyond my ability to solve to the point that I turn in desperation to someone else who can. Now watch the harshness of this scene. You see the formula? A vulnerable person in great need coming before a judge who does not fear God and who really doesn't like people. Well, she kept coming. And she kept coming, and Jesus says the judge ignored her over and over, repeatedly ignored her for a while. There was a season where she came, he ignored her. She came back, he ignored her. Finally, he said to himself, nah, I'm not getting anywhere. I I don't fear God, and I don't care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. How about that? He finally goes, and I am done with this. Here she comes again. This time she's going to get what she wants because I am so done hearing her whiny voice. That was his response. And Jesus said, I want to teach you something from the response of that unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. See, here's where we're going to learn something from Jesus about prayer. From the response of a man who does not fear God and he doesn't like people. Even he, after repeatedly being harassed by this woman's request, gave in and met her need. If he not acknowledging God and having no compassion for people, finally gave her what she requested. Will not God surely give justice to His chosen people who cry out to Him day and night? Will He keep putting them off? Wow, what a story! 
Jesus is saying if this man finally and ultimately gave in, even though he he denied the existence of God, certainly didn't fear him, and didn't even like people, he finally did what was right. Don't you think God will meet the needs of those who call upon him, cry out to him day and night, who will actually pray who understand that they are human and completely limited and desperate apart from Him, so they pray, they acknowledge Him, they cry out to Him day and night. If an unrighteous judge who doesn't fear God will meet this woman's needs, don't you think God who is righteous and compassionate and gracious and kind, especially toward those whose voices He hears all the time, will not meet their need? Of course He will. And then Jesus goes on to say, he will, only, he will not only meet their need, He's going to do it with haste. He's going to grant them justice quickly. Now hold that thought for a moment. He responds immediately to those who pray, to His children who He knows and whom, who know Him intimately, whose voices He hears day and night. Back to the email question, why why don't we receive or experience more answers to prayer? I'm wondering if part of the answer to that question might be because God doesn't hear our voices. We understand this principle. David declared in Psalm 116, listen, I love the Lord Because I have a great house. I love the Lord because my kids are so successful. I love the Lord because I live in America. You know what David said? Psalm 116.1 I love the Lord. Because he heard my voice. He heard me. He heard my voice in the morning. He heard my voice in the afternoon. He heard my voice in the evening. He heard my voice last night. He heard my voice last week. I love the Lord because he hears my voice. When I call to him, when I acknowledge him in prayer, he hears my voice. And I love him. I love him for that. And we learn to hear voices inflections. In in our home, the requests that are made and whether or not they're granted is all based on relationship. For instance, I know when Jonathan is afraid in the night because of the pitch of his voice. Dad! Dad! I know that sound. I, I know what that voice means. He's afraid. He doesn't need to drink a water. He doesn't want to put a movie in. He wants someone to come into his room. I know that sound. Jacob will say, Dad, Dad, I know what's coming. You want to go to Best Buy? Or I'm hungry. I just know that's what's coming, Dad. Hannah, Daddy. (laughs) I know. I just know. You know, we're going to get on Amazon and bring something down. Or we're going to go somewhere and get something, Menchies or something fun. Tracy's voice. 
honey, make me some coffee. I know that. I know what's coming. Will you iron my nursing scrub? I said iron. I can iron. You heard me right. But see, listen, I know that voice. I also know the other sound of Tracy's voice. Mark. Or if I overhear it from another room, where's your dad? I, I just know, I prepare differently. See the idea? We know the voice. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't, don't you think this God will grant and give and move on behalf of those, his children, he says, whose voices he hears crying out to him day and night and not only respond, but respond quickly? You see, it's all based on an intimate relationship that is fostered and deepened over time. He hears your voice, and so he moves. Uh, not, one, one school morning, um, Hannah called out to me from the other side of the house. Mornings are crazy at our house, okay? The only one calm and sleeping is the dog. The rest of us are running around trying to get our bearings, okay? Hannah called out to me the other morning from the back. She said, Dad, I said, yeah. Uh, could you get me that black, pink sweatshirt hanging in the laundry room? <laughs> now, to the unintentional, uninformed, non-relating dude, that request would make no sense at all. But you see, around Christmas, much to my chagrin, I, I actually went along with Hannah and her mom countless times and waited and walked around with my daughter and her mother through a store at the mall called Pink. And finally helped pick out the black, pink sweatshirt that made perfect sense. You see, it was not asking for a confusing color problem. This was, this was something I understood because there was relationship there. And guess what? She only had to ask once. I didn't ignore her. And in fact, I acted quite quickly and immediately responded and, and brought her the black, pink sweatshirt. Listen, prayer, Jesus said, is based on two things. The relationship of the one in need, it's desperate, it's bankrupt, and, bankrupt, and the character of the one being asked, he's faithful and he's good and he's responsive. I tell you, he will grant justice quickly. What a contrast. Now, just a couple of things I want to say, maybe as a corresponding lesson here. First of all, God is compassionate and ultra-responsive as He listens to our prayers. You need to know that. He is not vindictive. He does not hear your voice in your prayer pull up your file, and then work through a list to make sure that you're in good enough standing. We don't get that from Luke 18. He's not frustrated. He's not too busy. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. He doesn't ignore you. He hears and he is compassionately and graciously disposed to meet your needs, but especially those whose voices he hears day and night in prayer. Second, God never ignores or pushes pause on our prayers. 
In fact, he always responds quickly. That's what Jesus said. He, he not only responds, he, he will grant it quickly. You might say, well, I've been praying long for this, and he's not answered yet. You, you can't say that based on this passage. It feels that way, but you, it, it's not based on truth. Because the truth of this story is that Jesus, God, has answered your prayer. There has been an answer. He's met you immediately, quickly in response to what you've prayed and requested. Perhaps it's been a new perspective. Or he has revealed a special plan. Or maybe he's granted you an enabling grace or brought you closer to your mate or giving you a deeper appreciation for himself, giving you a passion, a deeper passion for his word, for eternal things. But he has answered, and you can be sure as the sun rises that he answered very quickly. It's there. It's there. Moses declared in Deuteronomy 33, there is no one like the God of Israel who rides across the heavens to our help thundering through the skies in majestic splendor. Great, eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are His everlasting arms. That's God. Now finally, Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, when He comes again, as we talked about last, last week, how many will He find on the earth who have faith? You see, when He returns, He is expecting to find us on our knees in prayer because we've chosen this path for our lives. A path that acknowledges Him, trusts Him, believes in Him, submits our lives to His rule. And so when he comes, he's asking rhetorically, will he find this kind of faith, a faith that actually is expressed in prayer when we're on our knees? There's a connection between prayer and watchfulness. It's easy to see what's going on in the world as it's seemingly un, un, unfurling around us, coming unglued, and then just sit and fret. Fret about our kids. Fret about their safety. Fret about our financial security. Uh, fret about our kind of political gain, all of these things so easy to fret. And there's a watchfulness in view here that Jesus says he, he's calling, he's looking for people of faith who pray, who bow before him and acknowledge him day and night. And so the idea is that prayer will have become so much a part of the routine and fabric of my life, our living, that even though his coming is imminent, it could happen at any moment and it will be unexpected that because we are so used to crying out to Him day and night, the odds are good that when He comes, He will find us in prayer. How about that? Not kind of perpetuating this... this this frenetic, anxious life. Do this, got to get this done, got to do this, got to fix this, got to make sure we got this done, check this box. Make sure this list is satisfied. <laughs> Maybe, is that what he's going to find when he finally comes on earth and here's all these Christians just running around, out of breath, out of resources, fainting. Fainting. 
Or will he come and find us bowed before him in prayer, God acknowledging his gracious rule in our lives? It struck me, it was pretty convicting, so I was getting ready for this. A good test run would be how does my family find me? They happen to walk in or just have a window right into my life. At any given moment, what would they find? Was that dad? Was that dad? Was that dad? Where's he going? Where were they? There's mom. She's, she's praying. There's mom and dad. Praying again. (laughs) It's a good test run for me. By the way, you can't uh, believe everything you read or hear these days. So much is fanciful. It's a great market for miracle stories, they're everywhere. I heard about a young boy in St. Charles, Illinois, who this winter fell into a lake, fell through the ice with his friends. Was underwater for 15 minutes, was dead for 45, and actually came back to life. I thought, oh man, here we go. It's going to be an interview, it's going to be a book, it's going to be a movie, it's going to be a seminar, maybe a sequel. That's how jaded I'd gotten. So I thought, well, I better read this for myself. So I read it. I read the story with all the jadedness. As I read it, something jumped out at me. And I thought, I think this is legit. I'm going to read it to you. Now that we've just made our way through Luke 18, and I want to see if you catch what I caught. 14-year-old St. Charles boy spent 15 minutes underwater after falling through the ice of the Lake St. Louis and made a remarkable recovery that no one can explain. It's, It's a recovery so complete, says one spokesperson on camera, that it can only be described as an absolute modern-day miracle that defies all science. Three 14-year-old boys fell through the ice on Martin Luther King Day. When rescuers arrived, one was almost out of the water. Another was holding on to the ice. The other couldn't be found. His name was John, John Smith. And now he's doing something that doctors never believed would be possible. He's talking, he's reading, he's responding. In his own words, the young Victim said, I don't remember much about it, to be honest, but I do remember the tubes, talking about his time on life support. He's just alive, and he was dead. 
An outcome, say, uh, some say, fits in with all the other miracles that day and in the days that followed, like the fact that Lake St. Louis fire and emergency crews had just practiced ice rescues that week before they pulled John out. And the doctor who was on duty in the ER at St. Joseph Hospital West the day of the accident was Dr. Kent Suterer, whose daughter was in the same class with John at an area Christian school. Dr. Suterer said in his mind it was a very grim situation with very little, if any, chance of survival once, once he saw John rolled into his ER. Dr. Suter and his team performed CPR on John for 27 minutes with absolutely no success, and the question was raised by someone on his team, how long are we going to keep this up? And the doctor stated he was dead for 45 minutes. And what happened next ex- uh, defies explanation. Dr. Suter called John's mother into the room to give her the horrifying news. And without even taking a breath, the young mother started praying loudly, says Dr. Suter. I don't remember what, I all, what all I said, recalls the young boy's mother. But I remember saying something like, Holy Spirit, dear gracious God, save my son. I want my son to live. Please save him. Doctors said they hadn't been getting a pulse at that time, so all of a sudden, someone said, we got a pulse. We got a pulse. The doctor said within a matter of a minute or two, the young boy's heart started beating again like it had never stopped. It's an experience that's shaken many of those in the emergency room that day. And this veteran doctor, responding to the medical crisis, wrote a letter about it as a way for him to express what he had experienced. All I can say is that his heart was jump-started by the Holy Spirit who was clearly listening to the voice of a desperate and praying mother. It was a miracle. To Luke 18. The Spirit of God heard a voice. A voice he recognized. You think that was the first time the Holy Spirit heard that mother's voice? Not in your life. Got a pulse. Call it a miracle. (laughs) Jesus called it prayer. That's how it works. You know what I used to believe? I'm 50 years old. I'm in a Bible college, seminary. I used to believe that passage was teaching about the power of persistent prayer. You know? Anybody else believe that? 
You should pray more and more and over and over and you just keep going, keep coming back to him, keep coming back. Well, then finally God's going to hear, he's going he's to move. He, he's moved by your persistence. <laughs> Guess what? Wrong. Jesus never said that. The judge was moved by the woman's persistence. That's what moved him. You know, remember the guy that didn't believe God existed and actually didn't like people? That's what ultimately moved him. That's not what moved the Father. Guess what moves the Father? Your voice. And the relationship you have with him because you're his child and he hears your voice. He hears it. He knows it. He, I know that voice. And so Jesus said, he always responds. And he doesn't just respond. He responds immediately. He responds quickly. It may not be exactly the way you think he needs to respond, but he does respond. He has responded. He has answered you because he cannot not answer you. Wow. Did you know that? I didn't. You don't have to wear God out to get him to move. That's not his way. Jesus said, we just need to learn that we ought always to pray so we don't quit. I know that there are people in this room who are hearing this and saying, Pastor, I've been praying till I'm blue in the face. Why hasn't God moved on my behalf? The only thing I can say in response to this is that Jesus says, he already has and does and will and will and will. There's someone here today. You've been coming here for a long time. Maybe someone invited you. Maybe you're here with a friend. I don't know. But you're here. Not by accident. You're here because God in his goodness, by his spirit, has drawn you to this place. And you're listening to this and you're going, I don't have a clue what that guy's talking about. So first things first. You can't talk to God. You can't have this kind of relationship with God until you surrender your will to him in faith. You don't know him. He doesn't know your voice. He knows your life. He knows what you're doing. He knows your needs. He knows your thoughts. But he doesn't know your voice. 
So the only response, if that is you, is to turn to him, to just repent, turn away from this self-reliance, live in your life however you want to live it, doing things to your body that you think is are okay to do and hanging out with the kind of people that you just think are okay to hang out with and finally say, you know what? I want to do what you want me to do, God. I'm tired of this way of life. I am so sorry that I have made a mess of my life. I have sinned against you in my mind, in my heart, in my attitude, with the things that I've done with my body, the things that have come out of my mouth, and I want to surrender to you and put my faith in your son, Jesus Christ. I want to give it all to you. You need to do that today. Because Jesus said, you run that out, the long distance the rest of your life and continue to refuse to to, to acknowledge God, you're going to faint, you're going to quit, you're going to throw in the towel. Finally, you're going to get to the end and there's going to be nothing, but there's actually going to be something. There's going to be an eternity without God because you never trusted him with your life. You need to do that today. But maybe there's some other people here who for whatever reason you have this knowledge and understanding, you have received the great gift of salvation in his name, you know God, you even know to a certain degree what we've been talking about up here, but you just, you, you just you insist on living on your own resources. You think you're smarter than God, wiser than God, you can see the future better than God, you can pull things together better than God, you can figure things better than God, so you just keep going day after day, week after week, month after month, as if God's not there. That too, taken out to the extreme, you're going to faint. You're going to quit. You're going to throw in the towel because you don't have what you need. He does. Luke says, Jesus told us this story so that we would finally be convinced that we ought to pray so we won't faint. Anybody tired of the race? Tired of trying to measure up, hit a bar? Aren't you tired of that? Man. This is, this is a day of surrender. Every dad, every mother, every family, every young person ought to just, just fall on their knees before him and say, I, I, I give up. I, I want your way in my life. I want your will. I want us to be a family of prayer. I want to acknowledge you. So let's pray. Just bow your head, close your eyes. Listen, if you need to just take a hold of your mate and by the hand or put your arm around your family and say, this is the day we're going to turn to God. We're going we're to repent of all this self-reliance and finally just trust the Lord. Just do that today. Give your life to God. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry. I know that I need you. I, I, I trust Jesus as my Savior. I want him in my life. I want this. Oh, God, be gracious. I pray you'll hear the voices of your people today.
as they turn to you in faith and trust. Be faithful. Move quickly as you promise. In Jesus' name, amen.